How are you all doing this morning? You doing okay? You seem a little sleepy. I'm going to try and fix that. Buckle up. Buckle up. You know, since the very roots of Christianity, people have really struggled with this idea of shedding blood for the atonement of sins. And the disciples themselves, they struggled with this idea that Jesus would need to suffer and he would need to die when he told them inevitably of his demise. He said, listen, I, I, I'm going to go. Here's what's going to happen. It's not going to be pretty. I'm paraphrasing here. In fact, Peter actually rebuked Jesus for even mentioning it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We'll get to Hebrews in a minute. Matthew 16. Verse 21, Matthew 16, verse 21, through your curve, didn't I? See, you're already awake. You're already listening. You're already focused. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be what? Killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> you got to love Peter, don't you? He's going to rebuke the Lord Jesus. All right. Uh, clearly, Lord, you don't have this right. Let me straighten you out here. So Peter takes him aside. I'm sure with a, with a good heart here. God, He said, uh, God forbid it, Lord. I don't know what you're talking about, but may God forbid what you're going to do. Lord, he says to him, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, what? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You are a stumbling block to me. That word is scandalon in the Greek. It's scandalous what you're saying to me. That's where we get that word scandalous from. It's shameful that you would even mention that to me. That's clearly from the devil, that you would stop me from the mission that I have to accomplish the will of the Father. Get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but whom's, but whom's, but whom, man's. Now turn over to First Corinthians, chapter one. You got to forget those little slip-ups like that. I just kind of create my own language as I go along sometimes, and you guys will follow, I'm sure. First Corinthians one, verse eighteen. Here Paul basically says something very similar, does he not? He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man, incidentally? Where is the scribe? Where's the great debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's what we were talking about in Sunday school, wasn't it? Has God not made that just look so foolish that man thinks he can determine his own set of guidelines, his own way to heaven, his own means of salvation? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, there should be like quotations there, its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, a scandal on, a scandal, and to Gentiles foolishness. The Gentiles wanted something. You know, the Greeks, they were like, can't there be some great philosophy to this? Isn't there something a little, you know, a, a little better for us here? You know, isn't it? I mean, this is a little too simple that this Jewish carpenter would die on a cross, and if I put my faith in him, I'll be saved eternally. Can't there be some higher thinking here? Can't there be some, can't there be some loftier academic way for me to get to God? No. He says here, but those, he says, uh, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews and stumbling blocks, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, liberal theologians, they absolutely detest the idea of Christ's blood paying for our sins. They hate it. They can't understand it. Matter of fact, they call Christianity or that version of Christianity that has the blood atonement on it, which would be what we would consider to be the orthodox Christianity, they call us the slaughterhouse religion. And they ridicule Christians who believe in a God who would be petty enough to be angry over our sins and pagan enough to be appeased by blood. That's their view. But see, sin is a much bigger issue than what liberal theologians, or for that matter, many professing Christians would believe, or perhaps worse yet, even accept. See, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The cost associated with our sin is not determined by us. And let me share this with you. It's not even payable by us. We cannot, by our own volition, substitute some other form of payment to be reconciled with God. There is not another form of payment rather than death. And many have certainly tried to earn their forgiveness of God through good works, but that's not the cost. <coughs> that's simply bypassing what God says is the cost for our sin with something less demanding than what he requires, like death. Listen well here, my friends. We cannot get righteousness before God without paying the cost for the forgiveness of our sins. That word righteousness means conforming to a standard. Picture in your mind, if you will, the scales of justice, right? You'd have the two plates on the side. And so if I want to turn my silver into gold, and I had, they would take and say, okay, I want five pounds worth of gold for the five, five pounds of silver. They'd put that weight on there on the one side and then fill up the other side with the gold until it equaled that amount. And that way they knew you had exactly five pounds. So the idea of righteousness is this idea of conforming to a standard, an acceptable standard, actually. And to have righteousness before God means that we must conform to his standard. He's the one who sets the scale, not us. And let me share with you here that his standard is not in comparison to each other. We don't get to say, I'm righteous because I'm better than that person over there. I know I am better than them. 
That's a false standard. And here's another one. His standard is not on a sliding scale of good things done in your life versus bad things done in your life. That's not the standard either. His standard is not a standard that you arbitrarily determined by yourself. One, incidentally, that agrees completely with the way that you live your life now. That's called self-righteousness. And the Bible tells us that that's repugnant to God. It's so offensive to him. It's as filthy rags to him. And when we try to justify ourselves through our own sense of self-righteousness, we just dig the hole even deeper, adding more and more sins through our own self-righteousness. Many people struggle with this whole idea of atoning for sin because they do not understand that you're not accountable for just a sin, but rather a lifetime of sin. Every sin is offensive to God. Every single one. Every sin against the holy, righteous God must be accounted for, and there's a great cost for each and every sin against God. And every sin is a sin against God. It is not just a sin. Every single part of us has been tainted by sin. It's not just the things that we've done. It's the impure thoughts. It's the immoral lust in our hearts. It's the bitterness. It's the jealousy. It's the self-righteous attitudes that we have to account for as well. And this high cost of sin and the shedding of blood for the atonement of sins is not new. As Pastor Ben was talking about here today, I mean, if you've been reading your Bible, this is not a new concept for the New Testament. From the beginning of human history, God has made it plain that the forgiveness of sins is only possible through the shed blood of an acceptable substitute. When Adam and Eve sinned, let's go way back to the beginning. When they sinned, they became aware of their own nakedness and sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their guilt and shame. Did God accept that? No, he did not. He didn't say, well, you know, I was going to, you know, put my wrath on you, but now that you've sewn fig leaves together, I guess it's okay. He didn't just walk past and wink at them either and say, you know, that's, yeah, don't worry about it, it's okay. Instead, he clothed the guilty people with the skin of a slaughtered animal. That's what he did. And in so doing, he demonstrated in a very graphic way the horrific penalty of sin, but also his great mercy in providing a substitute for the penalty of their sin, all in one action. God no doubt explained to Adam and Eve and their children the type of sacrifices he would accept. And then, because Abel obeyed God by bringing a sacrifice from his flock, but Cain presented to God an offering from the fruit of the ground. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4 that God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. And in anger, Cain murdered his brother. And in pride and rebellion, Cain became the father of those who hate God's ordained way of forgiveness through the shedding of blood. But here's what I don't want you to miss. God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to shed his blood to pay the price for our sins. Christ 
paid for our sin on that cross through his death. God placed our sin on him who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. And the only way that we can ever receive this gift is for through, through first recognizing the guiltiness of our own sin. We take it far too lightly, beloved, that when we sin, that we can somehow just justify it away. Secondly, we need to make sure that we're aware that the cost must be paid for that sin. We must believe that Jesus died on that cross for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And that if we confess with that sin to a holy and righteous God, and then when we do, Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth as uh, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you what? Might be saved, could be saved, should be saved. No, you will be saved. And when you do, it will be the turning point of your entire life. Everything that you do from that point forward in your life will spring from that moment that you believed and confessed. And when you repented of your sins and turned in faith to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And every decision that you make, every thought that you have will be grounded in the love for your Savior and your desire to live obediently for his glory, not yours. Everything changes. Your desires, your passions, your focus, your priorities, your comfort, your purpose, your rest will all be rooted in him. And the longer that you're a Christian, the further you're going to swim out in that ocean of grace, my friends. And you're going to depend more and more and more upon him for every facet of your life. That's the great joy I have as a pastor is to watch very mature Christians battle very serious things in their life and swim in that ocean of grace. Not trying to do it themselves, not trying to rescue themselves, not trying to build a float as they're out there in the middle of the ocean bobbing around in the tempest. They just rest in the grace of God. It's a wonderful thing to see, a rare privilege. See, this is why the blood of Christ is so precious for believers. And we certainly understand why the blood atonement is so offensive to unbelievers because it revolves around the very offensive concepts like guilt and sin and death and wrath and blood. They're not cheery subjects, are they? Those things are offensive to the lost because they magnify their sin. But at the same time, they're glorious to us because they magnify his grace. We'll turn in your Bibles then to Hebrews chapter 9. You're wondering if we're ever going to get there, didn't you? I got your attention now. Hebrews 9. Let's look at our text here this morning. Hebrews 9, verse 6. Actually, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 because that's where we covered last week. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
For where a covenant is, there must, of necessity, be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. No forgiveness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer where we unpack that. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord. Thank you for the richness of your text. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for the shed blood, which is the remission of our sins. Lord, it represents the remission of our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I could go on and on and on and on and thank you and thank you and thank you more. There's so much grace that you've shed in my own life and all who are here today. But Father, forgive us when we take that so lightly, when we presume upon your grace. Father, open our eyes, open our hearts, our minds to your wonderful truth. Father, if there's one here in our midst today that does not know you, I pray today, even where they're sitting, they would surrender their life to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's review quickly what we covered last week in verse 15. Verse 15, remember, is the summary statement. It's the summary statement about the entire chapter. What is that summary statement? Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And again, a mediator is one who stands between two parties to bring about reconciliation. The very fact that we need a mediator uh, demonstrates, again, that we are separated from God. If we weren't separated from God, we would not need a mediator. But we needed one and need one and still have one. What is it that separates us from God? Really quite simple, what we've been talking about all morning. Sin. Sin is what separates us. Sin is what must be addressed permanently in order for us to have permanent, unhindered access to God. And sin must be addressed eternally or permanently if we were to obtain eternal redemption, as well as our eternal inheritance. There's only one mediator through whom we can obtain eternal redemption and our eternal inheritance, and that mediator is Christ Jesus. Now, when did... Jesus become the mediator, the text tells us, verse 15, since a death has taken place. That Jesus, by the act of his death, became the mediator between God and man. And through his sacrificial death, the promise of the new covenant was brought about. And through his death, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. Then point number two, this will be in your notes up top here. Through his death, Jesus provided redemption for not just that age, not just this age, but every age. Jesus' death not only provided redemptions for the sins under the new covenant, it also provided redemption for sins under the old covenant. 
His death works to forgive the sins of all those believers in the Mosaic Covenant, and it works forward to forgive the sins of all those believers under the New Covenant. How were people saved in the Old Testament? They're saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They are saved by the death of Christ on their behalf. And in the same way, when the high priest offered the atoning sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, remember that sin, that covering was for the sins they had committed since last year. It was looking back at all of those sins. But the sacrifice of Jesus Christ extends all the way back to Moses here in our text, and really by implication, all the way back to the garden. So it's the beginning of man. And the sacrifices offered were but shadows of that final, all-sufficient sacrifice in Christ. The sacrifices themselves demonstrated their faith in God's final sacrifice as they looked beyond the blood of bulls and goats to God's perfect sacrifice in Christ Jesus. And then point number three for last week, through his death, he ensured believers will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is the purpose of all that work that Christ has done at the cross? The text tells us so that all those who are called will receive the promised inheritance. What is the eternal inheritance? It is our eternal salvation and all that that includes, including total access to God. So Jesus mediates a new covenant that transcends anything imaginable in the old covenant. And through his death, he inaugurates uh, the old covenant. Through his death, he provides redemption for every age. And through his death, he ensures that believers will receive their eternal inheritance. All of those things, all of those things are dependent upon one thing, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's death on our behalf. Now, our text today lies out like this. Verses 16 and 17, there's going to be a statement of fact. Here is a fact. Verses 18 to 21 are going to give you a couple illustrations of that fact. And then verse 22 is going to be the explanation of that fact. Okay? So let's look now to verses 16 through 18 to see the statement of fact. That brings us to point number one. Death is necessary for the covenant to be enacted. Okay? Death is necessary for the covenant to be enacted. So having stated that the new covenant was inaugurated by means of death, he now goes on these next two verses to show that death was necessary to inaugurate or enact the new covenant. Now the word covenant here has been a source of great debate because the same Greek word, deitheke, is translated covenant, in a couple of verses prior and afterwards, but here it's translated will or testament. So depending on what translation you have, <coughs> you may see covenant in the previous verses and then the word will or testament in verses 16 and 17. And that word can be translated by either of those words. The context really determines that. What happens in verse 15 is the author uses that word in a very religious sense in the previous verses, meaning a covenant God had made with man. But here he uses it in a very legal sense. A covenant is made for the living, but has a stipulated a curse of death for anybody who broke the covenant. Remember, uh, in the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant, right, they would cut the animals in half and they would walk through it. 
And then they would say, really, if either of us break this covenant, so you may do to us and our families what we just did to these animals, basically what that meant. So there was a curse stipulated if you broke that. That's the word covenant. So that happens while you are alive. A will, however, is activated only upon the death of the one making the will, right? So if you've made a last will and testament or a living trust, however you want to, uh, whatever you have in your, in your family, that's how it works, right? Nothing happens until the death of the one who made the will, so he wants to, he's using really a kind of a play on words here to illustrate the point that death was necessary for this covenant to be enacted. So a will is a legal document that explains how a person desires his possessions to be distributed upon his death and who is going to receive those possessions, how they're going to be distributed and who will receive them. And as long as that person is alive, there are no benefits dispersed, right? Right? Your will that you have made, your living trust, is only active once you pass along. But we can kind of see what the point here of the author of Hebrews is making, right, as it relates to Jesus. He's really saying, as long as Jesus was alive, preaching and teaching about salvation, there was no dispersion of his grace that was necessary to accomplish it, if you will, right, for all of us. Without his grace dispersed through faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no imputed righteousness to our account. There's no salvation. In order for Jesus to become the mediator, he had to die. In order for the new covenant to be enacted, the death of the one uh, who made the covenant needed to die to be able to disperse the benefits to the rest of us. Look at verse 17. It's basically a restatement of the same thing. He says here in verse 17, For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Right? So that he's, just, he's basically just restating what he just said in verse 16 for emphasis. A couple quick points of application. In, there are two quick points here I want to I touch on briefly before we move forward. Number one, this is why we're not saved by the life of Christ, but by the death of Christ. We indeed are sanctified as we're transformed more and more like Jesus, but our salvation is based upon his death. Why is this important? Because there are people who are confused on this point and are teaching that all you have to do is do what Jesus would do and you're saved. Just act a certain way. Be nicer to your family. You know, don't kick your dog. I mean, whatever it is, right? But having our lives transformed is more, is, is uh, having our lives transformed to become more and more like Jesus is the evidence of our salvation, not the means, not the basis of it. The basis of our salvation is by grace through faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sins was dead, buried, and rose again, and on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again someday to judge the living and the dead. Secondly, I want you to notice another thing about the will, is that a last will and testament is unilateral. In other words, when you make your will, you determine. You're the one who determines what goes in the will, what's going to happen, who's going you, you make that choice. If it's your will, you make those choices. The one who receives the benefits has absolutely no say how the will 
benefiting them might be drafted up. That's simply the prerogative of the one making the will. So the so also the new covenant is a unilateral agreement. There are no points of negotiation for the new covenant here. John Piper says it's a sovereign expression of God's will, not a negotiated agreement. We don't get to negotiate our way into heaven. When you stand before the righteous God, you will not be able to say, yeah, yeah, I know I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. But how you're not going to be able to plea bargain your way out of hell. You're already guilty. You're already guilty standing there. Unless you're covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You're already condemned. Look at verses 18 to 21, though, moving quickly. Point number two, Moses inaugurated the first covenant with blood. Moses inaugurated the first covenant with blood. So now we move from the statement of fact to the illustrations. Let's move quickly here. The first illustration is found in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. Go ahead and flip over there now. Exodus, Genesis, Exodus 24. So as you're finding your way there, here we find Moses and the inauguration of the first covenant. So you recall in Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments were given when Moses uh, came down from Mount Sinai. And then in Exodus 21 to 24, there's additional laws, right? There's sundry laws, do this, don't do that. Uh, here's what you do with your neighbors. Here's how you should, right? All of these additional laws. And then that's where we pick it up in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. Now let's pick it up there. Then he said to Moses, verse 1, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Why? Because you cannot come into the presence of God. That price has not been paid yet. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with them. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice, said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. No, they won't. But that's what they just said. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars. For what reason? For the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings, plural, and sacrificed young bulls, plural, as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and then he took the book of the covenant, that's all that he had written down there, and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. No, they will not. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's all the words that he just said and all the words that they just said. Moses comes back down from Mount Sinai, the law of God. He reads the law to all the people of Israel and then they're bound in this relationship with God by means of a covenant. And to inaugurate or enact the covenant required a ceremony of blood. 
Several animals were killed. Their blood was taken, sprinkled on the altar and on the people. And the point here is that even in the first covenant, even under the law, was ratified or enacted through the shedding of blood. Even the first one. Look at verse 19 then, back in our text. The author here it adds some details in this verse that we do not find in Exodus 24. You'll notice here we have uh, things talking about water and hyssop and wool. Those things belong to the Passover sacrifice in Exodus chapter 12. Some of that was used in the cleansing of lepers. We read about that in Leviticus 14. Other aspects of that are part of the sacrifice of the red heifer. You find that in Numbers 19. So either the author knows through direct revelation that these features were included, they just weren't included in, in the Word of God here, in the Old Testament. Or this is a well-known fact by the time the author of Hebrews is writing, that that's what they did in the first covenant, and that's what they're still doing in the temple today. The point here is that he took the blood and sprinkled it, and everyone had to be sprinkled with the blood. It all had to be dedicated with the blood. You could not worship God without the sprinkling of the blood. You could not have access to God if you through the priest without blood. The covenant itself was sanctified, purified, consecrated with blood. There was no service. There was no worship. None of that without the sprinkling of blood. Now skip verse 20 for just a second in Hebrews 9. Because of verse 21, we find our second illustration. We'll come back to verse 20 in just a second. So the same was true of the establishment of the tabernacle and all the vessels and all the covenant ritual. All were sprinkled with blood. Obviously, that wouldn't have been included in Exodus 24. There was no temple. There was a tabernacle at that time. Blood is the cleansing agent in almost every part of the old covenant ritual. The role of blood played a crucial part in the mediation of the covenant. Everything that pertained to the covenant needed to be sprinkled with blood. Now look at verse 20 as we come back to it now. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. When you hear that, you're going to hear that again very shortly as we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That should remind you of something, should it not? This is the blood of the covenant. Actually, what Jesus said in Matthew 26, what this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. He was, in essence, demonstrating that the new covenant was about to be inaugurated through his death on the cross. The inauguration of the new covenant would come through his blood. The shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ His atoning death is the confirming sign of the new covenant. Notice also here it says, which God commanded you. Did you see that? Kind of skip over that part sometimes. God commanded you. When you're in a covenant with God and have been sprinkled with his blood, incidentally, all of you are true believers. All of you have surrendered your life to Christ. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are cleansed. You are purified through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Every single one of you here, when you are in a covenant with God and have been sprinkled with his blood, that implies you are commanded to obey the terms of the covenant. 
you are obligated to keep the terms of the covenant. Did you notice back in Exodus 24 when they said, we do, we will, we will, we will? If you read a little bit further in there, God already makes a provision by having Moses sacrifice what they just said they will obey. Why would he do that? Because he knows they will not. The law was never intended to be the means of salvation. It was just a means to point to how desperately they needed God. How far short they fall from the holiness of God. My friends, no one can be sprinkled with the blood and receive the benefits of the covenant with God without abiding by the responsibilities of the covenant. You cannot simultaneously be under the blood and then also morally free to live outside the terms of the covenant. Do we understand that? You don't say, Jesus, save me, but I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. God, save me from your wrath, but I want to keep doing these things, even though I know they're offensive to you. I'm going to keep on living my life my way. Do we understand how a sovereign, righteous, holy, perfect God would see those attitudes in our hearts? And that would kindle a righteous anger in him. The implication is, if you're in that blood, you must obey. And all of this is inaugurated. All of this is initiated. All of this is enacted through the shedding of blood. All of this was preparing for the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would shed his blood upon the cross. Look at verse 22. Point number three, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. I want you to notice that first, that phrase. It says, one may almost say, what does he mean by that? That's actually a statement that demonstrates God's abundant grace because there was a provision in the law that if you were too poor to buy a goat and too poor to buy a, a bull for the sacrifice, for the shed blood, the atoning of your sin that God had a substitute for you, you could find this in Leviticus chapter 5, that you could bring some fine flour in, which everybody had flour, you could bring some fine flour in as a substitute. This is really a provision of God's grace and mercy. For what reason? To make sure that your current economic status would not prohibit you from fellowship and worship with Almighty God. That's what that saying is almost... See, that almost 99% of the time under the old covenant and 100% of the time in the new covenant, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Why must there be shedding of blood? Go to Leviticus chapter 17 quickly. Please, Leviticus 17. It's important for you to see this connection. I don't want you to miss this. Leviticus 17, verse 11. Look at this here. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life 
that makes atonement. That's where we find our answer. See, without blood, there is no life. The shedding of blood represents the shedding of life. The shed blood of the substitute uh, atones one life for another. One life must be taken so that another may be spared, set free from the penalty from their sin. Do you remember um, in Leviticus chapter 16, just one back, you have Yom Kippur. Yom means day in Hebrew. Hebrew. Kippur means atonement or covering. The day of covering. The day of atonement. And remember what they would do? they take the two goats, and the priest would place his hands on the one, and the one that they were going to sacrifice, they would draw lots, and they put their hands on the one they were going to sacrifice. That signified all of the sins of Israel, and this one we're going to sacrifice. And then they would cut the throat of that, and then they would, of that goat, they'd put it in a basin and sprinkle it, right? That's how he had access into the Holy of Holies. The high priest could not come in there without the shedding of blood. Even the consecration of the priest, remember, on his ear and on the tip of his thumb and on the tip of his toe, right? All of that, all of that consecration was through the blood. What happened to the other goat? That goat was set free. Why was that goat set free? Because the other goat had paid the price for those sins. And he was far outside of even the camp and let go. There's nothing else that can atone for sin but blood. But the death of somebody. You cannot have your sins forgiven by being good. You cannot have your sins forgiven through ceremonies and rituals. You cannot have your sins forgiven because you read your Bible every day or go to church every week or never say a cross word to anyone. All those things are wonderful things, but they are not the standard to which you must conform. The only way, let me repeat this, the only way you can ever have your sins forgiven, the only way you can be declared righteous, the only way you can be justified, declared not guilty for your sins, the only way you can be saved is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's it, beloved. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Amen? That's it. John MacArthur writes, God sets the rules. God said the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, rich in mercy, provided the substitute for death. Jesus' death is the only thing that satisfies God, which is why all over the Old Testament we see that blood splattered all over, that they might constantly be aware of the fact that bloodshed was the only atonement for sin, end quote. My friends, forgiveness is never cheap. It's always a very costly transaction, always. Grace is never cheap. In order for there to be forgiveness in your life, there must be a significant cost. In order for God to operate within his own economy, there must be death because the wages of sin are death and there must be blood. It's either your death and your blood or someone else in your place. But those sins will be atoned for one way or another. This is a fact that's illustrated all throughout the Old Testament. 
over 1,400 years ago, this fact was evident every time they came to worship and they had to sacrifice. There must be blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Clement of Rome is a first century church patriarch, and he wrote this, Because of the Father's love for us, and in accordance with his will, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, shed his blood for us, his flesh for our flesh, his life for our life. And can I just add this real quickly here? There's nothing magical about the blood of Jesus. Sometimes you see that in movies where it's portrayed as blood trickles down and all of a sudden vegetation starts growing. and It's what the blood represents, my friends. That's the important part. It represents the shedding of blood for your forgiveness. Someone is dying in your place. Someone that God accepts as a substitute for the penalty of your sin so that you might be free from the penalty of your sin, which is wrath. The wrath of God. And I have to admit it, I take the forgiveness of God too lightly. I can lay my head on a pillow at night and <clears throat> recount all the times I've fallen short. How many folks do that? You lay, you're laying in bed and you're just trying, Lord, forgive me for thinking this, forgive me for saying this, especially forgive me for saying and thinking this. I just go through, it's like a laundry list, a laundry list. And that, you know, that's it, I'm done, boom, I'm out. How often do I really think about what price was paid for me to enjoy that forgiveness? Not nearly as often as I should, my friends. How often do I consider what it costs the Father to provide forgiveness for my sins? There was an infinite cost for eternal redemption of my sin. It did not come cheaply. Dr. MacArthur, again, forgiveness isn't just God looking down and saying, oh, it's all right. I like you a lot. I'll just let it go. It's the costliest thing in the universe. Without bloodshed, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you are forgiven, it's because somebody died in your place. And that somebody was the Lord Jesus Christ. Never are we reminded more of that infinite cost than we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the men to come forward.